0: Well, good morning, Genesis. If, uh, if I've not met you before, my name is Jerry, and I'm the campus pastor here, and it's good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, I, as we get going this morning, I want to invite you to go back in time with me 20 years to the year 1998. What was going on in your life in 1998? Now, I met somebody between services, and they said, I was doing all the math. I couldn't figure it out. Let me help you. In 1998, The movies uh, that year were, the big movies were Armageddon, Titanic, and Saving Private Ryan. Okay, so go back 20 years. 20 years ago this month, Google was founded. Think about that. That's kind of had a big impact on the world for 20 years, right? What was going on in your life 20 years ago? 20 years ago, I was 20 years old, and I was a sophomore in college, and I had just declared a major in business and marketing, which meant that that semester, I was going to start taking my core business classes. And I was excited about that. And one of the first classes up was Accounting 101. And I thought, how hard can this be? I'm a good student, AB student. Uh, I make good math grades. It's got the word counting in it. I mean, pluses and minuses. Anybody can do this, right? Six weeks into Accounting 101, we had taken two tests. And I had earned not one, but two Fs. I was failing miserably. I was freaking out. I I didn't know what to do. And in hindsight, I wish I could go back and talk to the 20-year-old me and tell me the one thing that I really needed to know about accounting was that it is nothing like math. They are two totally different subjects. And if I had known that one thing, it would have saved me time and effort and energy and a few hundred dollars. Now, I'm going to guess you've been in a situation like that before. You've walked into something thinking, well, this is going to be great. How hard How hard can this be? Right only to find out there's some things that you didn't know or there's some other things that distracted you along the way and you found yourself kind of confused and maybe even a little frustrated. Imagine the power of somebody sitting down and saying, hey, here's the one thing that you should know. For instance, think about your dating life. What if somebody that you trusted that you would listen to had sat you down and said, hey, before you date anybody, you need to know there's lots of fish in the sea. Here's the one thing that you need to know or before you proposed or said, I do, if someone sat you down and said, hey, there's one thing you should consider here. Here's one thing that you should know before you use that credit card, before you go into debt. I mean, think if you knew that one thing, think of how much easier, how much more joyful your life could potentially be. Well, I'm gonna guess we've all been there before, but I wanna ask you a question. Have you ever been there before in your relationship with God? It starts off super exciting because he's God and he can do anything and you learn that he loves you and you're thinking, I'm in, God, what are we gonna do today? Let's go do this thing. Let's go kill it, right? And then all of a sudden, at some point along the way, you realize, man, this is a little, this is a little harder than I thought it was gonna be. And you're confused and you're frustrated or maybe you're even angry. Or more specifically, have you ever felt that way when it comes to following Jesus? You believe that he is exactly who he says he is. You believe that he's done all the things that he has promised to do. But the longer you follow him, your joy and your excitement starts to wane because it just feels like a long list of things you're supposed to do. Like I'm supposed to read my Bible and pray every day. That is a very good thing to do. But at some point it feels like a checklist item. And I know it's good to go to church and it's good to use my gifts to serve other people. And it's good to be a part of a church community and join a group. All those things are good, but man, your schedule can fill up really fast. And it's good to be generous. It's good to manage your money wisely and to give some of that away. It's good to know your spiritual gifts and it's good to know God's calling in your life. And here at Genesis, we would say, well, there's one other thing we want you to think about and that is Jesus calls us to make disciples. And so go do that. And all of that, I don't know about you. I'm just gonna be honest for me. I am down for all of that. But sometimes all of that, Oh man, it just feels like a long, laborious, impossible to-do list. Well, what if I told you that Jesus' very first followers actually felt the same way? Would that make you feel any better? If you're like me, probably not. I asked myself this question this week, I'm, no, it doesn't make me feel any better. I want it now, right? Well, what if I told you that Jesus knew that that would be a struggle for them and for all of us? And so he made it very clear that when it comes down to it, there's really just one thing that we need to know. One thing that we need to do, one thing that we need to have a laser focus on if we wanna know God, but more so if we wanna follow Jesus. But most importantly, one thing that can help us experience the life that he has promised for us, the joyful, fruitful life, one thing. And so today we're kicking off a series where we're gonna focus on this one thing that requires our effort and our attention. Again, not just to know God, not just to follow Jesus, but to experience the life, the real true life that he intends for us to have. And so our goal over the next several weeks, we're gonna look at this one thing, and for some of us, we're gonna discover it for the very first time, But I'm gonna guess for many of us, we're going to rediscover it. We're gonna be reminded reminded of an older truth that we've known, but we didn't really know what to do with. And believe it or not, this one thing, it not only has the power to help you experience that life, it has the potential to help us organize the rest of our life in a way that will truly matter. But before we jump into the one thing, I wanna be real clear on this. This isn't just another thing for you to do. This isn't something new for you to learn. But according to Jesus, everything hinges on this one thing. And I realize that sounds a little too good to be true. And some of you are thinking, I thought you were a pastor, Jerry, but this is starting to feel like a sales pitch to me. I get it. I understand. But here's what you need to know. This one thing was so important that it was one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he was crucified and left this Earth. So it's important, I think, for us to at least know what it is, and then we can decide what we're going to do with it from there. And so in order to find this one thing, we're going to be in chapter 15 of John's gospel in the New Testament. Now, if you want to follow along today, you can turn to page 752 in the Bibles around the room, or if you have a phone or an app and you want to turn to John 15, by all means, go ahead and turn there. But while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about John and his gospel. John was one of Jesus's closest friends on this earth when he was alive. And when I say closest, there were three guys that got to go everywhere. They had an all access pass to Jesus and John is one of those guys. And so when John writes his gospel, he is giving us an eyewitness account, he was there. He's telling us, I saw this, Jesus said that, we went here and did these things. And by the time you get to chapter 15 of his gospel, we learn, John tells us that Jesus is at the very end of his three and a half year earthly ministry. But if you read a few chapters before, what you discover is that he's not at the very end. He's in the last few hours of freedom with his disciples and he's sitting at a dinner table. He's been sitting at this dinner table for an hour or two by the time you get to John 15. But before they ate dinner that night, they gathered together, Jesus did something that would have blown their mind. He grabbed a basin of water and he went around the table and he washed all their feet. And here's why this is so radical because that's something that a slave or a servant would do, not your rabbi, not your teacher, not the guy that you believe to be the son of God. And then while they're eating dinner, he did something that I'm not really sure that they grasped onto, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this represents my body that'll be broken for you. And he took a glass of wine and he said, this represents my blood that will be poured out for you. And 2000 years later, we know what that means, but I don't think those guys fully understood what was happening because the very next thing Jesus says is this, Guys, it's time for me to go away, and you can't come with me. And we know that they didn't know what he was talking about because they all freak out. They all start asking different questions. In fact, this week, go read John 14 and pay attention to how many different disciples' names are mentioned in that passage. They all start saying lots of different things. One of them says, Jesus, what do you mean we can't go with you? We go everywhere with you. One of them says, Jesus, I don't care where you go. I will die at your side. And my favorite, the, guy, so the one guy says, Hey, Jesus, I don't know where you're going, but can you just tell us who God is? By the way, on on your way out the door, right? So confusion was reigning. They were overwhelmed. Emotions were high because, get this, just a few days before, like four days before, Jesus had ridden in to Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone was ready to make him king. And now he's saying, I'm going away and you guys can't go with me. What, how, why? And so it was in that final conversation where the disciples were overwhelmed and and emotions were running high and the tension was thick that Jesus made a decision. And he says, guys, it's time to go on a walk. I want you to come walking with me. We're gonna go to my favorite place to pray. Now, I asked you to go back in time 20 years. I want you to go back in time now 2,000 years. And I want you to put yourself at that table. You are one of the few. You're in the room with Jesus. You've heard these things, your mind is spinning, you're wondering what he's talking about and what's gonna happen next. And he says, okay, let's go on a walk. And you get up from the table and you walk out into the cool evening and it's Passover in Jerusalem, so the streets are packed. And you have to push through all kinds of people just to get from your house to the city gate. And on your way, there's, there's crowds and it's loud and it's noisy, but you get through the gate and finally things start to calm down a little bit. They quiet down and Jesus leads you to a quiet path, going up a hill, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he loved to pray. And finally, when everything else settles down and there's no city noise, it's all drowned out, Jesus is leading his disciples and and they start asking their questions. Jesus, what do you mean when you said? Jesus, but I thought, and all the guys are asking their questions and suddenly you realize Jesus has stopped. And he's looking off to the side and he's looking over a vineyard and it's a beautiful night, a moonlit night, cool air, and finally, everybody stops talking. And when everything settles, in the midst of all your questions, Jesus looks back at you and your friends, those first disciples, and he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Other English translations would use gardener instead of vine dresser there, which is a real help because I, when, it, when Jesus goes with agricultural analogies, I'm out. I can't grow anything. I'm like, okay, Jesus, I need the Cliff's Notes version. Help me out here a little bit, right? Which this might seem like a really weird analogy for us, but here's what you need to know. For those first century Jewish men and women, they were familiar with a grapevine analogy because the grapevine had been a symbol of national life for Israel for thousands of years. In fact, many biblical scholars note that the grapevine was such a precious symbol to the Jews of Jesus's day that a huge golden grapevine would have adorned the gates of the temple. In fact, there is a very good chance that they would have walked past this huge golden vine on their way out of the city to where they were going to pray. And throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is pictured as being a vine or a vineyard of God, and the grapes symbolized Israel's fruitfulness in doing God's work on the earth. So this might seem like a weird analogy to us, but when Jesus says, I am the true vine, they kind of understood where Jesus was going. But I'm gonna be honest with you. Maybe some of you are familiar with this passage and I wonder if you didn't make the same mistake I've made because I've read this before, but over the last two weeks, there is a word, a single word that's jumped out to me. Never caught it before. I always thought Jesus just said, I'm the vine, but that's not what he says. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. The Greek word here for true means real or genuine as opposed to something that is counterfeit or simulated or even manufactured. So when Jesus starts to speak about this very familiar analogy, he is saying, I am the true vine. And he wants his disciples to know, I'm the real deal. Guys, I'm not a phony, a fake or a counterfeit, I'm legit. And so on that moonlit walk in those final hours with his disciples, he wants them to know in spite of your fear, in spite of your doubt, in spite of your confusion, I am your real, I am your true, I am your genuine source of life. And the same thing that was true for them is true for all of us. Jesus is our real source of life. Now, I wanna be clear on this. This isn't just eternal life with God in heaven later. This is real, genuine life with God right now in this moment. That is what Jesus is claiming here. And we live in a world that says that life can be found in success and chasing your dreams and making a name for yourself and pursuing the American dream and having a bigger house and a faster car and really nice clothes. And I don't know about you, all those things make life a little better, but here's the problem with all those things. They can be gone just like that, gone. And when they're gone, guess what? They leave us feeling empty and wanting more. But Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And this is really important because he's getting ready to talk about the importance of the true vine and bearing fruit in our life. But before we get there, I want you to think about something. What is your favorite hard candy? I don't know what you would say, but for me, my favorite hard candy is Skittles. And I had so much fun putting these in this bowl this week because I may have eaten a few. I can't eat just one or two, though. I eat like five and ten at a time. And look at, I mean, look at all that fruit, oranges and lemons Oh, so, I mean, that's everything that you need right there, right? But let me ask you a question. Even if you really like Skittles and someone said, if you had to choose what you were gonna eat for a week, would you choose only Skittles or would you opt for real, genuine, authentic, organic fruit? Because here's what I know to be true. If I just ate Skittles for a week at 40 years old, I'm guaranteed to put on a few pounds, my stomach's gonna hurt and I'm gonna have sores in my mouth, right? Versus real fruit that's meant to sustain me. But here's another thing. What if I took one of these guys and I decided to plant it in the ground? What am I gonna get? I'm gonna get nothing. I'm not even sure that they disintegrate, right? They might melt at best. You're not gonna get anything. But what about if you take a seed out of one of these pieces of fruit? You don't just get a piece of fruit. You get a tree that produces fruit season after season after season, So I want you to think about this. This is, this is the analogy Jesus is getting ready to use. He said he's the true vine, and the true vine is focused on bearing fruit. Look at what he says in verses one and two. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, interestingly, Jesus talks about fruit three times in one verse. And not only that, did you pick up that there's a progression? He says there's branches that produce no fruit. There's branches that will produce fruit. And then some of those will be pruned to produce even more fruit. Jesus claimed to be the true vine that can provide us with real life. And now he's making it clear that the result of a real life that comes from him will bear fruit for him. And so I want to ask you some really important questions. Do you want the real life that Jesus has for you? Because I know that I do. But here's the next question. Do you wanna bear fruit for Jesus in your life? Because I know I do, but here's the kicker. Are you? And how how do you know? How would you know? And I'm gonna admit those questions, they seem awkward. Maybe they even seem a little harsh. You're thinking, who do you think you are right now? I'm just telling you what Jesus said. He, he, apparently to him, the two go hand in hand. You can't have real life in him and not bear fruit. Now I wanna hit pause and I'm gonna go back to that moonlit vineyard with Jesus and his disciples. I want you to imagine that you're there. I, I want you to imagine that you're hearing all this for the first time. How do you feel? What thoughts are racing through your heads? What questions do you have? Because I'm gonna be honest. These words from Jesus, they make me tense up because immediately I wanna know do I have that life? Am I bearing am I bearing that fruit? Because he says that not bearing fruit for him is not a good option. And so maybe you're like me. And right now, what you need more than anything else is for someone to tell you the one thing that matters the most in this moment. Am I bearing fruit for Jesus? If not, where do I begin? What's the one thing that I need to know right now and thankfully, that is the next thing that Jesus tells his disciples. Look at verse 14, or, uh, verse four. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And on three, of, three occasions in that one verse, Jesus uses this word remain. Other translations use the word Abide. But the Greek word here is meno. And meno means to stay, to remain, to dwell, to rest in, and to continue to be present. And so the point that Jesus is making here is we must abide, we must remain, we must stay connected to him. And so here's a really good question. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does it mean to remain in him? I've heard this a million times before and I've thought, okay, I need to log that in my brain, but what does it mean? Well, here's what's fascinating to me. Throughout his gospel, John uses this word meno 40 different times. 11 times throughout the whole gospel, he uses it in chapter 15. So it just seems to me like Jesus is making a very big point here. In this final conversation, he wants them to know, hey, if you don't hear anything else, if you forget everything else, I want you to remain, to abide, to stay connected to me no matter what is gonna happen next. One teacher said that abiding or remaining in Jesus means to make him your permanent dwelling place. And so maybe a great way for us to think about this is I want you to think about your home or your family. Where do they live? If you were to say, hey, Jerry, where do you live? I might give you my address, which would tell you the physical location of my house But it's one thing to have a house and it's another thing for that house to be your home. My home represents my life. It's where the most special people in my life live, my wife and my four kids. It's where we dwell. And every morning I leave home and Lord willing, every evening I come back because that's where I reside. We call our houses our humble (laughs) abode. Same word. And Jesus wanted those followers to know they couldn't afford to go off on their own or lose contact with him. If they wanted to experience the true life that he offered, it was an imperative that they stayed connected to him. And the same is true for all of us. He made it abundantly clear that the one thing that his followers need to do, no matter how we feel, no matter what might happen next, no matter what other people might threaten to do to us, we must stay connected connected. We must remain in him. Look back at verse four. He says this, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus makes it clear that our fruitfulness for him is a result of our connectedness to him. Warren Wiersbe summarizes this by saying that the goal is to keep fellowship with Jesus so that his life can work in and through us to produce fruit. So for those of us that say that we follow Jesus, for those of us that have publicly declared that we've surrendered our life to him, this is our goal and this is our challenge. It is to make abiding in Jesus our number one prayer and pursuit. Look at what Jesus says will happen if we do in verse five. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus takes a moment to define the relationship here. He says, look, I am the true vine and you're just a branch. And he says, if you remain in me and I in you, did you catch what he says? He makes a promise. You will bear much fruit. He promises it. He doesn't say, if you abide in me, eh, you might, maybe. Yeah, probably just a little bit. He says, you will bear much fruit. He promises to bear much fruit in us. As a branch, it's our responsibility to stay connected to Jesus and who he is as the true vine. And it's the vine's responsibility to produce fruit. As branches, we just don't sever the relationship. And when it comes down to the size and the shape and the yield, guess who's responsible for that? the vine, Jesus, as long as we're doing what we're doing, he says, I'll take care of all the rest. But if you look back to verse five, he makes a very strict warning. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What are you trying to accomplish in your life? Apart from Jesus, he says, you can do nothing. He makes it clear that if we don't abide in him, our life on earth will have zero eternal impact. Let me say it like this. If we don't abide in Jesus, our life on earth will be a waste. It'll be like a bowl of Skittles, or worse yet, the analogy that Jesus uses is it'll be a fruitless piece of firewood. And that's a sobering thought because that's a life that gives no glory to God whatsoever. Now, I remember learning this for the very first time about 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I had just started following Jesus. Casey and I had just been married for about two years. And I was really anxious to grow in my faith. I, I, knew, I literally knew nothing. I knew Jesus. And so someone from our church came up and said, hey, would you consider leading a small group for college students in a Starbucks right around the corner from your house? And I thought, well, I like coffee. I love people. It's within walking distance. No, thanks, I'm good. I said, I, 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 don't, I wanna be in a group like that, but I've never led a group like that. And I'm telling you, Greg, I know nothing. Well, a week later, he asks me again, and I said, Greg, come on, this is embarrassing. I'm not going to do that. And he said, okay, just come to the meeting. I went to the meeting, and I don't, I don't know how it happened. I don't know what he did. I walked out agreeing to lead the group on a Thursday night, and there were 10 people signed up. And I, I came home, and Casey's like, how was it? And I said, there's going to be 10 college students there next Thursday. I think we're in trouble. Let's just pray that none of them show up. <laughs> if, if nobody shows up, we can say, ah, we tried. We tried. And so, I mean, I knew I was in over my head. I recruited the smartest Bible person that I knew to be my wingman for all the hard questions. And then something awful happened the first night. All 10 people showed up. And I'm like, oh man, you guys aren't supposed to be here. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And I didn't know it at the time, but God was gonna use those college students to change our life forever. It changed the course of my career. It changed the way that I viewed Jesus because I only had one option, to trust him because I didn't know what to do. And then something terrible happened. The 10 of them started inviting their friends and a few weeks later, 10 grew to 20. And I'm telling you, we took over a very small Starbucks in a very popular liberal area of Louisville, Kentucky. And every week I thought, I don't know what's gonna happen when we walk in here, but it was so much fun. But Casey and I learned a very valuable lesson. We prayed. We prayed. Oh, dear Lord, we do not know what we're doing. I don't know why you keep bringing them. Would you please stop? And then they started asking questions about life and the Bible and Jesus. And guys, I'm telling you, oh my gosh, I knew nothing. But we had made the mistake of caring for these people and we didn't know what else to do. And in the weeks that came, several of them gave their life to Jesus. I still don't know how that happens, but he did the work we basically adopted one of them whose life was a mess. His dad had been physically and verbally abusive to him. And he would come to our house, he was depressed, he would just cry. And we didn't know, we're like, what do we do? But we just loved him and we cared for him. And those students, we thought we were helping them, they were changing us to the point that Casey and I have just decided, when that group ended, we just said, okay, Jesus, that was awesome. You do that again because you did all the work. Now, I'm not telling you that story so you think that we're very spiritual and we've got it all together because we don't, I promise you. We are just like you. We're trying to figure this thing out. But what we experienced was so life-giving that we've just said, we'll give our life to that because we have seen the fruit that comes when you let Jesus do work that only he can do, and he gets the glory. He gets all the glory. And by the way, Jesus says that's the goal. Look at verse eight, he says, "'This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, "'showing yourselves to be my disciples.'" Can I tell you what Casey and I were not thinking? We were thinking, we were not thinking, well, we're Jesus's disciples, let's go have some glory for Jesus. That's not what we were thinking. We were thinking, Lord, what do you want us to do? We don't know what we're doing. And they kept following, and it was fantastic. It was amazing. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? I bet that you have. Probably one of the reasons you're here this morning. I think it's safe to say, based on this passage, the one thing that you need to know about God's will for his life is he wants you to know his son, Jesus, personally. And he wants you to remain in relationship with him so that he can use your life to bear fruit in ways you would never, ever, ever imagine. I promise you, that's what he wants to do. Because in our, in our mind with that group, all we saw was a train wreck and God saw something so much more. And he wants to do that, the same thing in your life. And here's what's great. Jesus promises that our heavenly father will take good care of us along the way. Remember, he says, my father is the gardener. He cuts the branches that don't produce fruit and he throws them away. But the ones that does, he will prune So, they can be even more fruitful. He wants to prune you in your life so you can bear more fruit for Him. Not a fun process, but eternally speaking, it's worth it. Now, with that said, I realize this is a very familiar passage for some of us. It's brand new for many of us. And so I realize there's a couple of different people in the room. And I'm going to guess that there's some folks here that are saying this, thinking this in their mind. Hey, this is really good. I've heard this before, I learned a few things. But I was just hoping today that we would go a little deeper. And I get that, I, I have thought the same thing sometimes. But I want you to know, and I wanna be really clear, when it comes to going deeper, Jesus says, you wanna go deeper, you remain in me so I can bear fruit in you for my glory. And if you want to go deeper, he will show you how to go deeper. And I promise you're thinking apples, he's gonna give you oranges. You won't see it coming, he will show you gifts that you never knew that you had. But if you're here and you're thinking that deeper, is greater Bible knowledge, and deeper is only listening to Christian radio and only eating at Chick-fil-A because it's Christian chicken and it's really good. That's not deeper, that's normal. Deeper is surrendering our lives to Jesus, staying connected to him so he can bear fruit in ways that you could just never imagine. And it's not for your enjoyment or your comfort or your knowledge, it is for his glory. I learned, I had to relearn this this week. I was in a situation where through gritted teeth, I'm praying, oh, Jesus help me to be patient right now. I could really use some self-control. And the next thing out of my mouth, I didn't plan on saying, but it came out. I just said, Jesus, teach me to abide in you. It's because I was preparing for this. I think the spirit prompted me and I stopped and thought, that's it, I need to abide in him. That's deeper. Jesus, take me deeper. So if you're looking to go deeper, I've got some great news for you. We wanna help you practice. Deeper is bearing relational fruit that matters for eternity. And if you haven't noticed, we have some amazing kids that enter into our service every Sunday morning. And we wanna invite you to be on mission in their lives to show them that it's not just their parents that know and love and follow Jesus. You can serve with these kids. And if you're thinking, I don't know the Bible. Great, I didn't either. And I, that Starbucks, I just had to stay a little bit ahead of the people that I was leading. And we've got some great kids here. we got on Sunday night, we have amazing students. I have a student there and I need your help. I need you to show my kids that this isn't just something that dad does because he's a pastor. It's what we all do because we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You can practice with our kids so that you can go out into the real world and do this on a regular basis. So if you're looking to go deeper, we've got some little ones. We've got some middle school schoolers and high schoolers that need your help. What are you waiting for? If you're looking to go deeper, the one thing that you need to remember is you need to remain in him and let him do the work. But I'm going to guess that some of us here are new to this. We're new to the Jesus thing or we're just following Jesus for the first time. You're thinking, Jerry, just what do I do? Jesus made it really clear. You remain in him. You stay connected to him and you pray and ask him to bear fruit in your life. And I promise you, he will. You'll never see it coming. And so if you're new, maybe this means you join a group so that you can learn alongside some other people so that you know how to share your faith and live it out. Or maybe for you, you need to ask someone, hey, will you disciple me? Will you show me how to follow Jesus? And the same is true for you. You can start serving with our kiddos and you can practice here so that when you go to work, you're you're learning how to do it with kids so you can do it with adults. You're bearing relational fruit. And I want you to take a moment, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, and I want you to think about this. Imagine... What could happen in your life, in your home, in your cubicle, in the boardroom at work, in your cul-de-sac? What would happen if you started praying a prayer, Jesus, would you help me to remain in you so that you could bear fruit in my life? You, guys, I'm telling you, we have no clue. We have no clue the influence that our church could have if we just said we're going to remain in him and we're going to let him do what only he could do. But it means that we got to get in the game. Imagine the fruit that he wants to bear in your life, in my life, in our life for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that John recorded these words from Jesus and they are so familiar. Jesus, I'm thankful that you used analogies that we could wrap our minds around. And Jesus, you said, I am the true vine? Would you help us, for those of us that believe that, to lean into that, to stay connected to you, to find ways to stay connected to you? This is the thing that matters. For those of us that don't know you, Jesus, would you help us to get to a place of surrender we would say, Jesus, I want to remain, in you teach me how. But Father, I'm just going to ask in the power of your son's name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you please begin to bear fruit in us for your glory, not for Genesis Church, not for any one of us, but fruit that would last, fruit that would replicate so that we could reach people far and wide through relationships. Father, we ask that you would do what only you could do. And we ask it in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.